Do we have any uh, Lord of the Rings fans out there? You guys remember, I'm sure, the, uh, the Eye of Sauron? In the movies, it's depicted as this flaming, intimidating, powerful, scary eye. You know, just an eye that's held up in some sort of big, scary stone pillars. And in the Cimmerillion, in the, in the prologue of, of some sort, the prequels to Lord of the Rings, this is how Sauron is described. Sauron was not of mortal flesh. And though he was robbed now of that shape in which it wrought so great an evil, so that he could never again appear fair to the eyes of men, his spirit arose out of the deep and passed as a shadow and a black wind over the sea and came back to Middle-earth and to Mordor that was his home. There he took up again his great ring in Barad-dor, and he dwelt there dark and silent until he wrought himself a new guise, an image of malice and hatred made visible, and the eye of Sauron the terrible, few could endure. Is that your picture of God? I mean, how different is your picture of God from that? Does that have anything to do with your image of the Lord? It should invoke, I think, a lot of fear in us. You have this eye of flame that can see, right? When Frodo puts on the ring, it starts to burn. He sees what the eye sees, or something like that. I'm, I'm not a huge fan. <laughs> but it has no body, no heart, no ability to love, no, no context of a flesh, nothing. It's just the eye. The eye of Sauron. Well, I want to start there because I do want us to consider how different is that from the God of the Bible? How different should it be? Do we swing from one side of thinking God is like that to far to the far other side or not? Because Tolkien wrote fantasy not to kids. He wrote it for adults. If you read his, his sort of other, other stuff, he talks about how he wants to wake us up to see a world beyond what we see, to see the reality of God. That's what I want us to consider as we look at this really incredible passage in the book of Hebrews that climaxes a section in that book. Let's pray first. Father, the strife is over. You have won in Jesus Christ. We are filled with thanksgiving and joy and gratitude. And we ask, Lord, that you would speak to us now. Speak to us by your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit that we would have soft hearts to hear, that you would comfort the downtrodden and the needy, that you would challenge the hard-hearted and proud, and that you would knit us all together in love. To your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we come to this section in Hebrews, and it starts off by saying, let us therefore strive... And I want to just take us through real quickly where he's coming from in the book of Hebrews and how he's going to then sort of end this mini section with strive with endurance and what that means. Because chapters 1 through 3 is one, uh, one section over after another of saying why Jesus is greater. Why Jesus is greater than one thing after another after another. And it starts off in the very first three verses of the book of Hebrews, if you're looking for a section to memorize, this is, the, the, this is it, I think. 
this section or, or verse 16 in our passage that we heard read. But the book of Hebrews starts off this way. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. There's a final word we have in his son. He's greater than all the prophets. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is somehow the creator, the father, by his word, created all things. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. When, G- when God shines, he shines Jesus. And the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's how it starts. And then it unpacks over and over. Jesus then is greater than the angels in chapter 1. You thought the angels were special because they were involved in giving of the law. They're messengers of God. But Jesus is far greater. Jesus is greater than even Moses. And to a first century Jew or Jewish Christian, Moses is the cream of the crop. And Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than Joshua. Therefore, strive. Joshua didn't lead them into the real rest of the promised land like Jesus is doing. Therefore, strive. Persevere. So he's given us a lot of reasons to persevere because the church, what we know of the the folks who received this letter, they're struggling to fall back away from professing Christ to fall back into their more comfortable Judaism, most likely, so that they could avoid persecution, they could avoid uh, the sort of attention that this new belief in Jesus demanded. And so he's trying to get them to persevere, to strive, to not fall back. He gives us a reason in this section, not just that Jesus is greater, but that God knows. Strive, therefore, because God knows. Verse 12, the word of God is living and active. It highlights living. Living is the word of God. And active, effectual. It seems to be able to, it's sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing things that seem indistinguishable. So it can see the inside of your inner thoughts and ideas and imaginations. God can see inside where you're not really, you don't really want to face yourself. And so, it's amazing that he says this when we get to the next section, but let's focus on just 12 through 12 and 13 for a minute, because it makes a mockery of this sort of idea that a lot of people have that, well, I do bad things, but I'm not a bad person. At least I'm still a good person. I'm not like those people over there who are bad. I may do some bad things, but I'm not a bad person. Really? When you, when you come up against a God like this, the one that can see the thoughts and intentions of your heart? I mean, I couldn't help thinking, that if there ever was hashtag no filter... For everything that we do, that's what we see. Imagine there being no filter. You're, you're a four-year-old all the time. Whatever you think, whatever you feel, that's what you say. That's what a lot of 
four-year-olds do. My four-year-old did it while I was trying on new eyeglasses a couple of years ago in the quiet, you know, optometrist's office. And Julian yells out, I hate them. He doesn't have a filter. Sometimes you wonder if little kids, do they have an internal thought that they don't express externally? Imagine if you had that. Imagine if God actually saw and named the inner, just not even thoughts, thoughts of entertaining thoughts. Have you ever had that um, proud moment of thinking to yourself, man, I'm glad I only thought it and didn't do it, or I only thought of thought of doing it but didn't actually do it. We're confronted with a God that sees that. We're confronted with a God that says we are naked and exposed. No creature is hidden from his sight. That word exposed, interestingly enough, is a wrestling term for when you've been strangled down to the mat, you've been pinned to the mat, and so you're helpless. You've been exposed and shown as helpless before a living and active God. You see now why I started with the eye of Sauron. Exposed, pinned to the mat by the one with whom we have to do. As the King James says. The one with whom we have to do. To whom we must give an account. We have no chance to stand up to this, do we? You have no chance. And usually you may hear that from a self-righteous person, a more judgmental person. You, you are terrible. It feels like they're just putting us down to make themselves feel a lot better than themselves. But the fact remains that this is true. That this is God. He is a God of absolute justice. Justice is good. We should want justice. We should want a God like this. And I think this is part of why nearly every religion in the world, every sort of philosophy of life, has some belief comparable to this. Because they want to believe that everything matters. It doesn't just go off into into history and then not, there's not going to be, there's got to be a reckoning. There's got to be real justice. Right? We should want that. We should want it perfectly. If there's evil and injustice happening and there's not going to be a reckoning, that is horrifying. That's a scarier world than believing in a God who could see all. Isn't it? Can you imagine there not being a reckoning? That he's not going to put all things to rights? But what God does here is... He says, okay, either you can strive because he sees all. How could you possibly strive once you know this? You can't strive, so there has to be another way. And that's what I find so incredibly, incredibly opposite of what we would have expected with the next verse. Verse 14 leads into this section that encourages us to hold fast and draw near. How could you ever draw near to that God? 
How can you draw near? He's just said, no creature is hidden from his sight. You are naked and helpless. You've been pinned to the mat and exposed for all that you've ever done. Well, it's because of the way he starts. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. The great high priest. This is something he introduced into the letter in chapter 2. In verse 14, he starts off by saying this. Listen, listen to this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, the people of God, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. He has has entered into our world. A priest is the one who is in the middle. He's the mediator. He's the one representing God to the people and the one representing the people to God. Chapter 2 goes on. He did this to make propitiation for the sins of the people, to take care of God's wrath upon the sins of the people, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So that gives us a sort of... um, hint into what he's talking about here. This is a a bit of a summary passage. So because we have a great high priest who has entered in to our life, he he is not only our mediator, he is one that shares our flesh and blood. He is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. This is crazy. Because if you ever ask, does God... Does God even care about me? What is he even doing about the suffering in my life, the suffering in the world? You may not have a huge answer, but you know yes. You don't know specifically what he's doing in the midst of your suffering, but you absolutely can say, yes, he cares. Yes, he cares. He is able to sympathize with your weaknesses. Even with the ways in which You have been tempted. Does he listen? Yes, he does more than that. He doesn't stand back in his privileged place. Can you imagine what it would take for you to literally put on the shoes of another person? And this is something even more than just having compassion with another person. This is like having compassion with your dog. He is the God of the universe willing to share in our being, to share in our life. The King James says, he's not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He's able to feel them. And he feels them a lot more because he was tempted and yet didn't sin. If you've ever, hopefully, you sometimes try to fight your temptation, the more you fight them, the harder it gets. Meaning, you see how powerful temptation can be when you fight it. If you just give in, it lasts for a couple of seconds and then you give in. 
If it lasts for years, you see how relentless and powerful the temptation is. Jesus was tempted in every respect the way we were. That's how much he knows us. He knows us and loves us. He's the great high priest, and then we're told he is the son of God. This too comes earlier in in, uh, Hebrews, where we're not only in that chapter 1 that I read, he's spoken to us finally with this final word that we can trust the Son of God better than even the previous prophets. It's also a contrast with Moses the servant. Moses served in God's house as a servant. Jesus has served as a son. And therefore we share in Christ, we're told. In chapter 3. So we have this great high priest. We have this son of God. And so he gives us these reasons. And now he's going to give us two very clear, I don't have to come up with the implications of these facts, very clear implications of what we are to do. Let us hold fast to our confession. That's the first thing. Let us cling to it. Let us grasp it. But I want you to remember that this is all under that, the section of strive. We're striving to enter God's rest. And how do we strive? We strive by holding fast, by clinging to it. Why is that important? You're, you're drowning in a deadly river and you're holding on to the life preserver. You're bringing, you're, you're, you're holding on to your confession. Now what does it mean to hold fast to the confession? Confession is an interesting word because in that word, it harkens back to what he has said above in 12 and 13, when it says, of him to whom we must give account, you could say, of him to whom we must give confession, give a word, give a reason. You can take the word of God that is living and active, You can give Jesus as your account. You can give Jesus as the the priest who is going to stand the reckoning of God in your place. Or you can give something else. You can hold fast to your own ability to stand before the God who has exposed you. Or you can hold fast to the confession that Christ is your mediator. Those really are the options we have. These are the options that the whole world has. You can stand before the day of judgment and say, I can stand, right? I can stand on my own power and might. Remembering that this is the God that we're standing before. No creature is hidden. He discerns the difference between your thoughts and intentions. Or you can hold fast to the confession that Christ is your priest. Hold fast to the fact that this is, this is just a new type of striving. This is a new type of work. It's a, it's a falling back. Our confession talks about receiving and resting in Christ. And then he tells us to do something that may be even more surprising. After verses 12 and 13, he says, Let us then... With confidence, draw near. 
Really? Does this, this should surprise you. With confidence draw near to the one who we're just told knows every single thought that you've ever had. That you've ever had. Before you were a Christian? After you were a Christian? When you didn't know better? He knows it. And yet he says, draw near. And yet he says, cling to me. Hold on. And don't go far. Don't go far. Because you don't have a reason to go far anymore. What reason could you have to run away anymore? Is it your sin? Well, he, we were just told. He's the one that dealt with it. Is it you think he doesn't care that he's too far off? We were told he's the one who intentionally took on our existence, shared in our flesh and blood so that he could free us from the slavery. Why is it that we don't draw near? Who or what is it that you go to instead of Christ? Because we really have no reason not to heed this invitation. Right? What other, what other reason could there be that would say, yeah, but I still can't draw near. I still can't draw near. I have this other thing that I need to get. Listen to the way Calvin describes prayer. He's got an amazing section in his Institutes on Prayer. John Calvin, who, you know, he gets this stereotype of this stodgy intellectual theologian. But listen to how he talks about prayer. What sort of prayer will this be? He's, he's starting off by saying, don't, don't offer weak prayers. What sort of prayer will this be? O oh Lord, I'm in doubt whether thou willest to hear me, but because I'm pressed by anxiety, I flee to thee, that if I am worthy, thou mayest help me. That sounds like us, doesn't it? Maybe if you could, if you have an extra spare moment, listen to me, please. No, he contrasts it with this. If we could pray fruitfully, we ought therefore to grasp with both hands this assurance of obtaining what we ask. For only that prayer is acceptable to God, which is born, if I may so express it, out of such presumption of faith and is grounded in unshaken assurance of hope. Prayers are vainly cast upon the air unless hope be added from which we quietly watch for God as from a watchtower. The amazing thing, I think, about what he's saying is not just hope in the Bible has to do with assurance, has to do with certainty. The amazing thing also is that if we're not coming to God in that way, if we don't come with confidence, if we don't come knowing that he loves us more than we do, we even love ourselves, we're making a claim about who God is and what he's done. Right? If you're not drawing near, if you're trying to offer up prayers, you're sort of lobbing them out from far away, you think that's how you reach God. You think that I can be, if I can be respectful and not bother him that much, that's treating God the way he ought to be treated. But what is that saying to God? What does it say if you stay back and reserved? He says either he doesn't really care that much or he can't do anything about it. 
you either think he doesn't love you or he's not powerful enough. You think he has a, a, a limit. You know, he can only deal with, like, Syria and Afghanistan, and then whatever he's got left over, maybe he'll, he'll give to us. This is not who God is. More specifically, when it comes to the book of Hebrews, we can, we can say all this because Christ has been exalted. So he is this high priest, as verse 14 says, he is the high priest who has passed through the heavens, died, resurrected, and passed through. He has been exalted. Chapter 1 says he sits down on the throne now at the right hand of the majesty on high. The throne of grace. That too is interesting. It's a throne of a king, but it's of grace. I put this quote in your bulletin too about Jesus' ascension and why it's so important. Jesus ascended into heaven to appear for us in God's presence. Atonement was not complete until Jesus stood before God on our behalf. Jesus, our priest and mediator, appears in the presence of God, bearing our names as a memorial to God. He is the sign, the reminder, the pledge, the guarantee that we belong in the presence of God. Our presence before God is as certain as Christ's presence before God. Our salvation is safe and secure as long as Christ is in heaven. I can no sooner be removed from God's presence than Jesus can. Dang. And so our prayer life, our approach to God, the way we we act before him or the way we act amongst one another, says something about whether we believe that or not. Are there things that we think can get us out of the presence of God? Are there things that we think should lead us to go far away, to not draw near? Because that would mean you think Jesus is not that secure in heaven, that he's He's still working his way up. He's still trying to get into the good graces of the Father. Man, if there ever was a sermon to preach to myself, do you draw near? Is your intimacy filled with awe? And ask yourself, why not? And so really... This is, this is meant to be the birthright of every Christian. This is the, the invitation that he is writing to every Christian. This is the word that we have from God. If you're not a Christian, I want you to realize there is a reckoning. There will be a day of reckoning. Maybe you're tasting it right now, or maybe you're putting it off. We should want there to be a reckoning. Because there is real evil and injustice, but it's not just out there. It's inside our hearts. And so there is a God that is bigger than even the eye of Sauron. There is a real God that sees with perfect accuracy. And he is one that you, with whom you have to do. And so I want to invite you to do business with him. Come to him, because... I'm sort of uh, just rebuked by this sermon that Martin Lloyd-Jones gave in the last century. Listen to what he says. When we talk about God, oh, the way we speak about God. We've all done it. I've done it myself. I've been one of a company discussing religion and God and theology, and there we all sat in armchairs discussing God. 
The amazing thing is that God tolerates us at all, and that he does not wipe us out of existence. What would it take for us to realize, to realize, as he says, the, na- the real nature and being of God? If you want to know anything about God and be blessed by him, then you do not start by speaking about him, nor by thinking what you want to think about what God ought to be like or about what God ought to do. You just stop in silence. And you wait, and you listen, and you adore, and you look up. Have you ever realized who God is? Everything in connection with, with religion is about him. Christ came into the world and died. Why? To bring us to God. It is all about God. It is not some comfortable feeling that you and I strive for. It's not having your body healed or a thousand and one other things. The whole object of Christ and his death upon the cross, his burial, his resurrection, is to bring us to God. This is the point of it all. To bring us to God. And we get to come in Christ. If you do share in Christ, man, what a sympathetic Savior you have. What a sympathetic Savior you have. Literally, He shares your feelings. Sympathos. He is compassionate and powerful. We have compassionate friends, but they don't seem all that powerful. He is compassionate and powerful. And invites you to draw near. And so really I want to ask, what else do you draw near to? What else do you go to when you're in, in need? When you're looking for help? When you need mercy? Do you go to your phone? Do you go to Netflix? Do you go to... There's all sorts of things. Do you go to your bank account? Do you go to porn? Do you go to alcohol? Do you go to the friend that's just going to yes you? What do you go to? Why not go to Christ? Why not draw near to Christ? Listen to the way this song puts it as we get ready to come to him at the table. Draw nigh and take the body of the Lord and drink the holy blood for you outpoured. Offered was he for greatest and for least, himself the victim and himself the priest. He that his saints in this world rules and shields to all believers life eternal yields with heavenly bread makes them that hunger whole, gives living waters to the thirsting soul. Approach ye then with faithful hearts sincere and take the pledges of salvation here. O judge of all, our only Savior thou, in this thy feast of love, be with us now. Father, that is our prayer, that you would empower us to draw near. We, we may think we have every right to draw near and we come in our pride. We may think we could never draw near and we come in our false sense of thinking we're humble. Lord, let us draw near in you. Open our hearts that this word would be a word that defines us, that we would know your throne of grace, that you would be more intimate to us than our spouse, than our dearest friend and family, 
that you would know the inner thoughts and intentions of our heart and we would welcome that exposure because we want to find mercy and grace in a time of need. Lord, make us a people that are intimate with you. To the praise of your glorious grace, we pray. Amen.